This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Alex Gaeta, the David M. Rickey Professor of Applied Physics and Material Science at Columbia Engineering, and also the founding CEO of Escape Photonics. So we'll be talking about photonics, which is, as I understand it, essentially about using advanced optics to manipulate light, and why that's leading to vastly faster and more energy efficient advanced computing. We'll also talk about how he gave up his shot at being a professional tennis player to pursue a career in physics, and how not getting into his first place college when he was applying to college actually led him to his success in optical engineering. We'll also talk about his new startup, Escape Photonics, which just raised $10 million to pursue advanced computing applications, but also about the lessons he learned from the failure of his prior startup, and what it's like to launch a startup with his wife, Dr. McCall Lipson, and their close friend, Dr. Karen Bergman. We'll also hear about how he chose which investor to partner with and how much money to raise. He'll tell us a bit about the resources he took advantage of at Columbia for helping to launch his startup, including both raising the funding and also meeting his chief technology officer. And then finally, and something I care deeply about, we'll talk about his decision to launch Escape in the middle of West Harlem and about New York's rise as a deep tech hardware startup cluster. Dr. Gaeta, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I wanted to start off with the layperson's understanding of what does photonics mean and what kind of work do you do in your lab at Columbia? Photonics is really the technology of using light. Uh, and you know, light is used for many different things. It's used for you know, sensing, it's used to light up a room. Uh, you know, if you look at much of the lighting that's converting from bulbs, it's, it's converting to LEDs, right? Well, that, those, that LED is what's called photonic technology, you know, it's not... And, and, and so photonics, I would say, for the most part, involves anything that uses solid-state materials. Um, I think it's not a well-defined thing, but it uses solid-state materials. And that includes, for example, even using light where you control and manipulate it on a chip. You know, it's sometimes called integrated photonics, but often photonics is, uh, is equivalent to thinking about uh, using semiconductor chips that have been used for electronics, but designing them and making them in such a way that the, the, in the same way you can manipulate electrons, you can manipulate photons. In my lab, you know, we do, uh, I work in quantum and nonlinear photonics, and, uh, and you know, the, the quantum part is using photonics to uh, develop quantum technology, um, which, uh, you know, obviously is a very hot area. The nonlinear photonics, you know, I, again, it's a little bit challenging sometimes to explain, but I always think about how I used to describe it to my parents. It's the generation of new frequencies. So it's the fact that you can put in one color and you can get a different color out or multiple colors coming out of your piece of material or sample. And so that's really the heart of nonlinear photonics. And uh, so one example of that would be like the green laser pointer. So mm -hmm. that, that actually uses nonlinear photonics technology. And, um, um, but, and, and normally in the past, I think it used to be called nonlinear optics and it was really required high-powered lasers. But nowadays, uh, you can really do nonlinear photonics with really one milliwatt of power, what you'd get from a laser pointer. And mm. so that has now made nonlinear photonics potentially technologically relevant. You said this is relevant for quantum computing as well. 
when I think about quantum computing, I'm thinking about sort of the entanglement piece. How is that relevant for photonics? So in the same way, so entanglement uh, can be done, you know, between particles, and I guess the way I would think about it is, you know, photons can be thought of as particles, and so you can realize entanglement with photons, so you can have uh, photons that can be entangled in, in much of the same way that any two particles can be entangled, and so the entanglement there is equivalent. And again, the nice thing about photonics is there's, they've really developed a lot of technology um, uh, to manipulate and create this entanglement. And in addition, uh, you know, one of the critical things for all quantum technology is that the losses are as close to zero as possible. And uh, photonics, a lot of the devices, whether it's optical fibers or uh, if you're going through free space, like satellite communications, uh, for photonics, the losses are very low. And so that makes it no matter what quantum technology is developed, uh, it's going to use photonics in one way or the other. And so what happens, maybe for those people who don't know what is actually happening in their phones or their laptops, on a traditional chip, how does that work? And, and how is that different with photonics? So on a traditional chip, all the information is kind of carried by electrons, by electrical signals, which I think, you know, that's the way the original telephone that went underneath the Atlantic, you know, used, there's one cable that goes all the way across and, and, and sends the light. And so, you know, electrical signals, all the ones and zeros are just sent along the little tiny wires. They're stored, they're retransmitted, regenerated. And so, uh, and the nice thing about that is all that is in the electrical domain. Um, light has a huge advantage, which is that um, electrical signals can't travel too far before they get, the, you know, the, the, the signals start decaying or, or you know, essentially the channels become very lossy. And, uh, and so light has the advantage that it kind of makes everything almost flat, doesn't matter if I'm transmitting over a millimeter or over a hundred meters, there's almost no loss. Mm -hmm. And, and then the key part is that uh, you can send along, let's say, one wire, an optical cable or optical fiber, you can send many different channels simultaneously, whereas an electrical wire, you can only send one at a time. Hmm. And so, so that's a big advantage. I, I'm trying, I'm sort of imagining for the electron, for, for the electrical signal, are there then like repeaters that would be needed to make things sort of like boosters that... that exactly, yeah, so then you have, exactly, you have amplifiers, electronic amplifiers that boost the signal. But of course, then that means is that you're using power, right? You're, you're losing power. This, this is what makes light so attractive if you at least want to go for longer distances. You mentioned that you can use light to send more information down the same, essentially the same, like more water through the same pipe. Is that kind of a way of... Uh, what I would say, uh, how, how would I put it? Not more water, but for example, you can send different colors. And the beauty of light, unlike electrons, you know, if I try to send two electron streams down the same fiber, they'll interact. But light of different color, uh, you know, so if I send a red, red beam and a blue beam down an optical fiber, you, you can combine them, send them down, and then easily separate them, and they will not, there won't be any what's called crosstalk. They don't interact at all in the fiber. And that's, mm. It's a real. It's actually part of the fundamental physics of photons versus electrons. 
And are most of the people who are so are most of the people who work who are who work in photonics at the research level primarily come from a physics background? Then, like, what would most people? What's your? I, I would say it's it's uh, either physics or electrical engineering. Okay, and for you. Uh, for me, it was unusual. Uh, I, I got all my degrees in optics. So when I was, uh, you know, a graduate student, uh, an undergraduate, there were only two places in the world that, that actually gave optics degrees, and that was the Institute of Optics at Rochester, and then the second one was at Arizona, um, uh, the School of Optical Sciences. And where did you go? I went to Rochester. You went to Rochester. Yeah. Did, uh, how did you get into like why why did you get a degree in optics in the first place? Uh, it was pure luck, uh, actually. Um, you know, that's why I, you know, I'll, I'll tell the story in a second. But you know, when students come and, and they want to plan out their next five years, I can just tell you, you know, <laughs> don't don't try to think so far ahead. In, in my case, I actually uh, I was a, a very high uh, level tennis player uh, growing up, and so I um, Which naturally leads into photonics. No, uh, well, <laughs> but what happened was I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And uh, I used to play a lot of tournaments in Rochester. And the tennis coach there really wanted me to go to Rochester. And I wanted to go to other schools, actually. And, and I knew nothing about optics. I wanted to do physics, but I knew nothing about optics. I didn't know Rochester had an optics program. And uh, the other schools I wanted to get into, I didn't get into. And so I ended up going to Rochester pretty much by default. Huh. And so then when I was a freshman, someone told me, oh, you should take a course one of the freshman courses in optics, I said, oh, I don't want to do that, it's lenses and stuff. He says, no, no, it's lasers and a lot of cool stuff. So I took the freshman course and I loved it and I said, this is what I want to do. Huh. So if, you, if you'd gotten into the other schools and gone somewhere else, you probably would have done physics, but you may never have found your way into this field at That's all. That's absolutely true. That's amazing. What advice do you give your students about what to do when they come ask you what to do and what, what they should be planning their career after five years? Um, don't try to optimize and know exactly what you want to do. Uh, I think the key part is that you should like it a lot, but it's hard to know what you will really like and what you won't. So if you find something you like, you know, <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, as a, uh, I don't know, I forgot who said this, but you know, if you're 90% happy, don't try to grab the, <laughs> the 10%. That's really, really good. And so if you're happy what you're doing, it's how happy and successful you're going to be is much more a function of you than what you're doing, mm-hmm. than the actual topic you're working on. If, you know, and I try to tell students that it's much more a function. Your happiness and your success is going to be driven by you. It's not the area you're in. Did you know before you went to college that you would end up getting a PhD and becoming a professor? Or was it you were interested in physics, but you thought you could go do something else? No, I, I, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Even when I was a senior, I was told... Um, I decided for, I actually wanted to... A high school senior? No, no, uh, I was a um, college senior. College so I was finishing my degree in optics. Actually, I was planning on playing tennis professionally. And, um, and my uh, parents had already agreed that they would support me for two years to see if I could make it on the pro tour. And, uh, and so then, um, but then I decided that they had a master's program, which only took like nine months, two semesters, and you know, it was like a BSMS program, so I said I could get it. But I wasn't a great student as a bachelor's uh, student, and I went to someone to ask them about it, and he says, well, yeah, but he says, you're a marginal candidate. And so he, he actually uh, then said, if you want to get any chance of getting in the master's program, you better uh, try to get some research experience. 
And so I went to my undergraduate advisor and I said, uh, I need to go work for someone if I want to get in the master's program to, to get some research experience. So he gave me the list alphabetically of the professors who might be looking. And so the first person on the list was Boyd, Bob Boyd. And so I went to talk to him. I asked him, you know, I want to work in your lab. And he says, do you know what I do? And I said, no, <laughs> I did all the things wrong that you're supposed to do. He says, well, I do nonlinear optics. And so I said, okay, that sounds pretty cool. And so I read up a little bit, that sounds pretty interesting. So I started working in his lab. And, uh, and then I started the master's program. And then within, it was, uh, within a, a month, I would say, I, I, you know, I don't know, boys grow up late and I just all of a sudden realized what I really wanted to do and I wanted to get a PhD. And up until that point, it was the furthest thing from my mind. So, every, you know, like Boyd, when I first met with him, he asked me, do you want to get a PhD? I said, never, never. And then, uh, but then uh, after about a month and seeing what actually PhD students do and the interaction with professors, I said, that's what I want to do. So what was different about that experience than the undergraduate experience that you've been having up to that time? Well, the graduate, you know, graduate student experience is completely different from undergraduate. You know, you're not taking courses, you're really doing, it's much more self-directed, much more independent, much more open-ended. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot depends on the professor you're working for, but, you know, Boyd for me was like a perfect advisor. He, he gave me a lot of freedom to, to look and explore things. And if he thought I was going in a good direction, he just, you know, he, he really, uh, you know, obviously had tremendous experience and knowledge and so it really helped, you right. know. I want to get to, to Escape Photonics, actually in whose offices we're sitting, so we'll come back to that later. If the audience hears uh, traffic noises in the background, it's because we're on the corner of 116th and Frederick Evans Boulevard um, in West Harlem, so it's a little bit noisy right outside the window. Um, but before we do, can we, if you could, I know that Escape was founded on work between yourself and Michal Lipson, another uh, professor at Columbia, and Karen Bergman. Um, what was the what was the aha moment? I mean, you've been a faculty member, you've been in research for your entire career. Um, why this idea and now? Um, so uh, we had actually I actually started a company with Michal when we were at Cornell. Uh, called Picolus, uh, which developed really powerful technology. It was called a time lens. And we actually commercialized it. We sold a couple of devices. They were very expensive. So, uh, so it was a nice little component that you could add to your oscilloscope, and it, and it worked, but it was a very expensive device. We sold very few, and, and that business uh, basically went under. And that was done, uh, Alex Cable, who was the CEO and sole owner of Thor Labs, which is a very famous company. He, he invested in us as an angel investor, uh, but it, it ended up not, not really developing in, into a you know, full product line or anything. But it was great technology. But it taught us a lesson that you know having great technology is not the only thing you need. And so then, um, you know, we've been thinking for a while, maybe even three years ago, about you know we developed this multi-wavelength source with Michal and we've been uh, working on it. Actually, I'm going to stop you there. What does a multi-wavelength source mean? So it means starting from a single laser that you can produce many wavelength channels. And so for, obviously, this could have a lot of applications actually. Everything from sensing to, uh, and, and, you know, attractive 
one, but for sensing time and frequency metrology, making optical clocks, but also for data communications. Because you can think of as, if you want, for data communications now, they do something called wavelength division multiplexing. What is that? That, that is where you have, what I said earlier, many different colors of light that are all traveling in parallel, and each one of those colors contains information, and you can separate out the colors very easily. And so you can send it down an optical fiber, and so that allows you to send, you know, basically many wavelength channels simultaneously down a single optical fiber. So, so this is the idea you mentioned earlier, like if you set red and blue together, they will exactly. Back, but this is more than just red and blue. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, and current telecommunication systems, you know, they might send eight channels right now. So today, the ones that go under the ocean. Uh, and, and certainly, this, so this is a, a known thing. Uh, but trying to get something that would be a chip-based device, so uh, one that, that uses semiconductor processing. So this is Michal Lipson and I developed this technology. And we've been working on it for, I don't know, probably at least 12 years or so. And uh, so we thought maybe that would be a good product uh, that could turn into a company. But then, you know, we've also been collaborating with, with Karen Bergman and, and, you know, we had lots of discussions and she had been telling us that this could be really useful for data communications. And we knew it would be, but she was really convinced by it. She said it was an essential part of Because this is really her world. Is, is yeah, so her, exactly. And so her, her world is, is building photonic architectures for high performance computing where um, you know, they're looking to do very uh, low energy communications, very high bandwidth. Um, and so, uh, and so we started collaborating with Karen on this. And, and I think the aha moment was when, you know, I, I think it was a recent demonstration, you know, about two years ago, where we actually used this multi-wavelength source with Karen's technology and we combined it and it worked really well. Hmm. And so that's when we realized actually that this could really be something. And the, what's, when you look around at the other, and presumably you're not the only lab or startup on the planet that's trying to do photonics based uh, high speed computing, um, what makes this different? Like, why is this different than the other startups that go on to raise VC money? So, yeah, so I mean, there, there are lots of uh, photonics. Um, companies that are trying to develop these type of uh, communication systems that can can work for high performance computing and, and other applications and uh, the, I think our part which is the IP that we've developed here at Columbia um, is this multi-wavelength source so that's a big part of it there are other aspects as well but that that one's certainly a key differentiator there's other parts that, you know, uh, Michal has developed, uh, that Karen has developed, and so it's kind of the full package. But certainly, I would say at least uh, most of these other companies don't have this type of multi-wavelength source. They have versions of it, but uh, what I would say is that it's, you know, those are very challenging to do. And we think ours is a, a more cost-effective, uh, high-energy efficiency way of doing it. Okay. And if this works, just because our the listeners are probably not deeply enmeshed in how computing works today. Like, what would this allow industry to do? Well, why would someone outside of the photonics or the semiconductor space care about this? Well, I mean, this is looking at a longer future. But right now, the way uh, computing is done is you have 
different optical components. So it could be a graphics processing unit, which is called a GPU. These are things NVIDIA makes. They're uh, computing processing units. These are CPUs like Intel makes or AMD. There is memory. And all these things, for the most part, when you look at them, they're all connected through electrical connections. Um, but if you look at how much data can be sent through these electrical connections, it's really limited. And, uh, and what's clear is where computers are headed is having heavily connected components, uh, which could be, for a large system, could be across of tens of meters. And so that can't be done electrically. And so what you have are all these things, all these very fast components where the data is moving around very fast. And then if it wants to communicate to another one, all of a sudden the data rate drops mm -hmm. by a factor of a thousand. And so that's a bottleneck. And it's really fundamental that, that electrical connections will not be able to continue to, to get to the data rates that people want. To when you say fundamental, you mean like physics? Fundamental. Physics, fundamentals. It's what I was saying earlier that, you know, you look at the heat expended by sending this data, you look at the size of the chip and it's, it has a limited perimeter. And so you just cannot get the data off the chip. And in fact, that's sometimes called the escape density. Mm. And in fact, that's where the name of the company comes from, is, is that uh, this escape density of how much information can you get off a chip or a fixed area is limited by its perimeter. And so with photonics, that's how you can beat that and you, you can overcome this bottleneck and now you can get potentially data rates that are much higher. So I, I, I think a decade from now, you know, many, many computing systems will use it. 20 years from now, it may be that all computing, you know, almost all, maybe even your phone will use photonics to do the communication. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is there any downside? I mean, is it one of those things where they'll end up being a natural situations where you'd rely on traditional electronics and situations where you rely on, on, on optical electronics? Or is it, is it once this technology makes it to scale, there's really no logic for why you'd have an electronic chip anymore? No, well, I would say the electronics you'll always need for processing, and I think for short connections, it may be you know short data connections. It's going to be tough to beat the energy, the low energy that you can do for electronics. Where the photonics will come in is at the larger scale, you know, the longer lengths. And if you look at the history of telecommunications, you know, it started off where was fiber, where was fiber communications first started? The very long distances, transoceanic. And then eventually they start going to shorter distances, you know, you know, let's say uh, region to region, and then it got metro, and then you know it's gotten to shorter and shorter length scales, and so that that's going to continue to happen, um, and it's because of this flatness that I, I was talking about earlier. It doesn't really matter if you travel, you know, a few millimeters or, or tens of hundreds of meters, you know, there's no loss. Um, and so uh, you know, I think the same thing will happen. Of course. All computing will probably use it, but the question is, of course, and this is important whenever you're starting a business, is this the time it's going to happen? Because there's, there's many moving parts, you know, where um, lots of things have to change because it's a, it's a completely new way of doing these connections. And it requires you changing from electrical to light and back to electrical. Whereas how it's been done in the past is everything stays electrical and that's much easier. And so making it so you can develop that interface so it can be done cheaply, easily, 
and efficiently, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, we've certainly seen, uh, you know, having been at Columbia now for 17 years, the number of uh, really promising technologies that turned out to be incredibly relevant, but were just ahead of their times. I mean, are, are a lot of, uh, I think about our climate technologies, you know, direct air carbon capture and other carbon capture technologies have been, people at Columbia have been working on that and filing patents on those for 20 years, and they were essentially impossible to create startups around, and now they're flying off the shelves. It's an incredibly hot area. Um, so there's, there is always a risk that it could be a great idea is just the rest of the industry hasn't caught up. You clearly must believe that that's not the case here because not only did you form this company, you actually did something that very few faculty members do, which is leave your lab temporarily to go run the company as the CEO. Um, why did you decide, you know, the traditional faculty approach is often to uh, start the company, have their grad student or postdoc go run it, and you're on the scientific advisory board. But you went all in. Yeah. Why? Uh, I think I think it's going to be very important, especially early on, to get the technical part right. And uh, so I think if we can work out, commercialize the technical part that you know so a lot of which has been demonstrated in my lab or Karen's lab or Mikhail's lab is. Uh, is to make sure that um, that we commercialize. So everything we've done was done in in, in fabrication facilities like Cornell or or the ASRC here at Cooney. And uh, so, that's the Advanced Science Research Center, which sorry, is yeah. an amazing facility up at the City University of New right. York, just up here in uh, ten blocks away. Ten blocks away yeah. in West Harlem. Exactly. That Columbia has, uh, you know, is kind of contributes to, yeah. and, and it's a really great facility. But um, it's another thing is to do it in a commercial foundry. Uh, and, and there's only a few, you know, only now is Photonics starting to, to, to get to the point where, um, you know, these foundries are starting to be able to create the components and devices that are necessary for realizing and commercializing this technology and being able to do it on a massive scale, you know, millions of of wafers or devices um, and so that's the part that still needs to be worked out and and there's technical issues involved in doing that and I thought and I think the VC felt that way that at least for the very beginning to have someone who's highly technical that's kind of in charge of that. How have you found the reception at Columbia to the idea of launching a startup? Is, is like has Columbia been a good place to launch a startup from? Uh, actually remarkably good. Uh, so, um, I feel like we were actually, especially me, were really very nicely and gently but firmly um, helped along, uh, especially at the early stages in terms of, uh, you know, even kind of the very basic stuff of getting a, you know, getting a pitch deck right and, and being patient to really listen to the pitches again and again and again and offering valuable feedback and also getting to uh, interact with uh, uh, VCs, you know, especially early on, making connections, but also just talking to people, you know, Columbia arranging, you know, the, uh, I forget what you call them, the fellows who mm. who are at Columbia visiting, you know. Oh, the executives and residents. Executives, that was what I was looking for. And, and that, you know, they provide valuable feedback. Actually, they provide some really key feedback 
Um, it was one of, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but one of the comments was precisely this, is that if you just make the multi-wavelength source, eventually you're going to become a commodity, and that's a very tight margin, but if you can build the full system, then, then that, that, that's a lot different and makes you much more valuable. So that was a key, key insight. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, and then, you know, many of our connections, uh, so, you know, we gave our really first public pitch was at the Yale Columbia Pitch Day, if you remember, in October of 2021. And again, I felt completely out of my, uh, uh, like a fish out of water and, and taken there. But, you know, again, you know, you provide a lot of support, encouragement that you, we were going to be fine. And that, that already, that gave us a lot of connections already to VCs. And then most importantly, it gave a connection to our CTO, our now current CTO, Vivek Raghunathan, who saw it and was already familiar with us. But I think uh, Greg Maskell, you know, hooked us up and that was very, you know, he has been, he is fantastic. That's great. Greg is, uh, works in Columbia Technology Ventures in our office. Right. Um, I'm so glad to hear that. That's, that's really great. It's, you know, it's interesting. I think, um, I remember when I first took this job, and I'd never worked in a university before, as you know, I'm not a scientist or an attorney, and so I, 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 the first couple of years I had it, I had just massive imposter syndrome all the time. Like, I, 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 I can't believe I'm doing this, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and it took a little while to sort of ease into the idea that, that um, you know, you'll figure things out and you can sort of make way. And I think when people look at senior faculty like yourself or uh, Dr. Lipson or, or, or Dr. Bergman, um, it's it's hard to imagine that you guys are ever doing things that you're not comfortable with or that you don't come don't come naturally. Um, has it been a struggle for you to think about yourself as the CEO of VC Batman? You've got ten million dollars that someone's invested in you to go make this a success. Like, how does that feel? Uh, well, again, I'm still learning a tremendous amount. I still feel very much like uh, uh, like I'm in grade school um, uh, in terms of comparative. But you know, I um, I try to listen a lot, and, and I, I you know I try to use the strengths that I do have and have developed as a professor. But there's still I have a lot to learn. But you know, I, I, to be honest. I still feel my best years are ahead of me. <laughs> you know, I'm getting older, but I still feel my best years are ahead of me. And so, starting a company and helping it uh, be successful at my age, I think, is it's healthy. It makes you feel young. Yeah. And uh, so, for me, uh, you know, and, and I hope to always feel like I'm learning new things. So, um, you know, as I, as I I always tell my students, um, you know, if you're not a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, then that means you're not pushing yourself, and you're not uh, you're not working at your optimal level. Hmm. Um, I, I, I'm, it's okay to mention something personal, but um, you've you know you've not only started a company with your close friends because I know that you and Dr. Bergman and, and Dr. Lipson have known each other for a long time, but in in your case, you're also married to Dr. Lipson, and so. Um, there's all sorts, there's like a dozen different, um, you know, uh, guidelines about what not to do in a startup. <laughs> like, We've been um, told that. <laughs> um, how's that? Have you guys, have the three of you had sort of conversations about this, you know, like opening this new phase of this, you know, of this relationship of, of you being the CEO of the company that their technology's in? 
Um, well, Michal and I, I mean, uh, we started this, you know, we've been collaborating now for probably, it's getting, uh, probably, uh, it's, it's probably coming around to 16 years. We published over, you know, certainly over 100 papers together. Um, we are, you know, both obviously personally, but also professionally incredibly complementary. And so uh, it's just, you know, it's, we just don't have issues in our collaboration. And, uh, and, you know, I would say one thing I've learned over the years is the most important thing, and I know it sounds silly because you think, oh, it's, it's technical expertise, but the most important is trust. And when you're collaborating with someone that you feel that they won't take advantage of you, that they will be completely open with you. Uh, and so I've had, you know, not only, uh, you know, wonderful um, personal relationship with my wife, Mikhail, but also uh, I think a remarkable professional relationship where we really both bring different strengths to the table and, um, and it's helped, you know, we've been really successful. So to, to start a company seemed kind of natural. We, I, we had no concerns that there would be any issues. And then to do it also with Karen, who's a, you know, fantastic friend and, and so you know at least from my perspective it, it just feels like I'm interacting with two people who I trust completely and they're world leaders in, in their fields so you know it, it just it's like a dream right well, what's better than that yeah um, while we're on the subject of some of these, these personal relationships and decisions uh, it was incredibly gratifying watching you come through this startup launch process and having learned so much and then you know it's often the case that a startup is lucky if they get anyone interested in funding them for any amount of money and in your case you ended up in a in a in an embarrassment of, of of riches in terms of having multiple different parties that wanted to really good we don't need to mention names except for the one that did fund you but it ended up being a bake-off between a couple of different funders who wanted to uh, give money put money into the company and and at very different levels. So you know, this this companies that could have launched with a thousand dollars and a C, I'm sorry, a million dollars in a seed round, or five million, or ten million as you did, or fifteen, or fifty, or a hundred. And so, for advice for aspiring entrepreneurs who might be listening to this, how did you know which partner to go with, and how did you know how much money to take? Well, I mean, I guess the money is you know, ideally, I think most of us who are starting would say as much as you can take, you know. Uh, when you're doing deep tech like this, hardware in particular, I mean, it requires a lot of funding. And, uh, you know, you're making things, you're building things. I mean, if, uh, so there's something called a tape out, which is where you design a, a semiconductor chip, you then send it to the semiconductor um, the foundry and then uh, they make the chip you know and it's a turnaround time of uh, several months but each one of those runs is you know of the order of half a million dollars it's expensive and to get you know you don't get it right the first time it takes several of these so right there this is just without considering the lights and the heating <laughs> you know that's already several million dollars that you're going to have to spend to get your technology right and, and so you know, the amount of funding, but also, you know, for us in our case, uh, Altair, we viewed both as a, you know, fantastic partner in terms of their vision, what they had a vision for Escape Photonics, but also as a, as a 
strategic partner. They're you know, the leading company in the world on software and simulation, AI. And so for us, uh, it felt like a really, you know, that, you know, in terms of long-term uh, prospects for Escape, they seemed like a great strategic partner. Yeah. And obviously, they're also close friends of Columbia. They've been involved with the Absolutely, yeah. And so Jim and Stephanie are fantastic people. So Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I, I, I hope to, but, you know, Jim, I think, really uh, believes strongly in, in Michal, Karen, and me. You know, he, he liked uh, the technology, but also he thought that we were the type of people who could, who could actually make it work. Right. And, and in terms of the amount of money, I mean, you do see that there are startups out there that raise 50 or $100 million to tackle the same problem. Um, on the other hand, the more money you raise, the more what you, the, the amount of equity you have gets diluted. And so how did you, I mean, why 10 and not 20 or 50? Well, um, I think early on it's actually, I mean, I don't know what the sweet spot is, but if you have too much money, it can also, you have to hire a lot of people, and then all of a sudden you have to scale up what you want to end up doing. And I think uh, you lose a little bit of your ability to be flexible. And I think for a startup, that's really important that you, know, you think you know where you want to go. And, and uh, you know, I would say for a lot of VCs, they, they sometimes want incredible details about where you want to go. And I can tell you, you know, within two months, you, you can be pivoting <laughs> at least slightly from what you were you know, telling the VCs. And, and you know, it's because you're getting new information all the time, and you know, I think it's a good rule of thumb. If you get new information, be, don't be stuck in your ways and say, no, I'm going to do it this way no matter what. And so, you know, we are always getting new information. It's a very complicated system. And so having 10 million keeps you lean. Mm. So you, you can have a fair number of employees, but not too many. You don't have to have commitments, and and also, uh, it, but it also allows you to, to slightly move in directions, and maybe not completely commit to a you know to a certain direction because you know if you invest fifty million dollars in going in this direction, it can be much harder to pivot. Before I let you go, I want to address the the honking noises that people are hearing from the background. So I think when people think about a semiconductor company, they, they you know you'll often have those images of those Intel ads. Uh, from you know from 10 15 years ago the people in bunny suits and some massive sprawling warehouse in suburban California and I, I wish the audience could see I'll take some pictures and post them uh, in the Spotify uh, and Apple description when, I, when we launch this but I'm looking at a uh, I'm looking at the corner of 116th and Frederick Douglass Boulevard at a subway sandwich shop and uh, a chicken place and <laughs> a wine store and a bagel store like we're above a realtor on the third floor of, a t of an office building. And this isn't the only, even just Columbia, deep tech hardware startup that is launched in the middle of super dense New York City. We've got Voyant, also from uh, Dr. Lipson's lab, across the street from Penn Station. Um, and then a little bit north of here in West Harlem in the Mink and Malt buildings, we have other Columbia startups um, that are you know, Quicksilver Biosystems and others. How has, New York City been, like how did you choose to start and grow your company here in New York? And what do you see as the future of New York as a sort of semiconductor and hardware startup um, mecca, the way it has become for biopharma and others? So I think, it, it, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, so two things, and I think this is an interesting concept, especially for semiconductors, is that most of these companies are what is called fabless, 
by fabulous I mean that we actually don't make the chips. We actually send the chips to foundries, and there's only a few foundries in the world. I mean, literally, you know, let's say major foundries. You know, it's on the order of ten in the world. And, and in photonics, it's less than that. The foundry literally makes the chips. Yeah. So just like you know, foundries that we used to think of when we were kids, where they made steel and, yeah. and so on. They, these are making little semiconductor chips. So they're called foundries. Um, and so, really, what we are doing more as a company is designing, and then we characterize those devices. So the devices come back, and, and we have the capability to characterize them. And so, in that sense, it doesn't matter so much where you are. And uh, so, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, Intel, they had foundries, <laughs> you know, there, which now are, not, you know, not all of them are there. They're all spread out. There's new ones going to be in Arizona and other places. But I think New York City, uh, you know, again, offers the attraction of, you know, there are a lot of VCs that are located in New York City, so that's one part. And, uh, and a lot of the tech, uh, there is interest in, in connection with finance, you know, it, it will benefit finance. So from that point of view, New York City is pretty good. But again, you know, and, and I think even more so, that what the pandemic has made people realize is it's taught them how to function you know, across, uh, you know, remote places without having to necessarily be located there. So in which case then, you know, where you're located, while, while there are perhaps advantages of being in Silicon Valley, New York City has its set of advantages, which, you know, it's, at least for us, you know, the most amazing city in the world to live in. And, uh, and there is a good talent pool. There's a lot of universities around here in which you can pick, you know, pick prospective employees. And uh, I think the key part for continuing to have success, especially in the deep tech that's you know, not biopharma, but is to continue building it up so that employees feel that there's kind of a, an ecosystem there that if they want to switch jobs, they, can, they don't have to move to a different city, they can stay in New York and still do that. And, uh, so, uh, and I think for a lot of young people, young employees, uh, New York City is very attractive. And for us, you know, it's being close to Columbia where you know, we have a lot of our students who will be graduating and perhaps want to stay in New York City. And so, you know, we can, uh, we can pick, you know, work. they can just move over here to escape. And of course, it's convenient for us to, Michal, Karen and me, to be near, nearby to have meetings with, with, the, with the company and so on. Dr. Gander, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Orrin. I really appreciate you taking the time to hear some of my thoughts. Thank you.